Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here on this week's episode. Robin is flying solo. Unfortunately, Josie was unable to join us when we did this recording due to various, let's call them 2020 related issues. Um, Everything's fine. Nothing to worry about. She will be back next week. So Robin is by himself this week chatting to the author, journalist and broadcaster Ian Dunt about his new book, How to Be a Liberal. You might best know Ian from his uh, live tweeting of the debates and the House of Commons and everything throughout Brexit or his Romaniacs podcast. Before we get to that, a reminder that book shambles can only exist, especially during a year where we have done precisely zero live shows uh, with the support of you, our good listeners on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge to support the show, get yourself some extra goodies on there as well. And if you can't support us in a financial manner on Patreon, just subscribing to the podcast, listening each week, tweeting about it, mentioning it on your social media, on Facebooks and Instagrams and wherever else the kids are using these days. Although I don't, I don't feel like book shambles is really going to cut through the dancing videos on TikTok, but you never know. And also going onto Apple podcasts and rating five stars or viewing the show on there, that helps us out as well. So thank you very much if you have done that, are doing that, or plan to do that. Cosmicshambles.com has got all the other stuff we've been up to, documentaries with Chris Hadfield, blogs and much more. And also over on the Science Shambles podcast, don't forget to subscribe to that as well. We'll be doing weekly and over on the Science Shambles podcast, don't forget to search for and subscribe to that as well. There's the weekly Q&A show, of course hosted by Robin and Helen Chersky, and we will now be doing midweek science book shambles on that podcast as well. We know that a lot of people, a lot of the regular listeners to book shambles, don't necessarily want to listen to all of the science authors that we chat to, so we're putting those uh, lots of science chats with science authors up on the Science Shambles podcast, and also they'll be on this feed as well one week later so you can catch up with those plus the normal thursday episodes with authors from all genres anyway that is more than enough waffle from me here is today's episode here's robin and ian hello welcome to josie and robin's uh, book shambles uh due to uh and well uh, the, the normal thing actually which is we're recording this in the morning and uh child care of course in these times can be an enormous problem so today uh josie will josie is is here but she is she she's she's here in in some ethereal form but i am here in the physical form uh for conversation and we're joined by uh, uh ian dunt uh, who is yeah but we can say broadcaster and uh author and uh, his his book is um how to be a liberal thinking for yourself in a populist world now this is uh i don't know how far we're going to get into this because thinking for yourself first of all even that before we even get into the chapters before we get this is a book which um has a lot of history to it uh i don't mean as in your relationship with the publisher and the i, I mean the actual the book itself 
really covers the, the history of liberal ideas. Uh, you know, it starts off with Descartes. We go through many civil wars uh, and wars of independence and various other things um, to get to some definitions. But I want to start with that thinking for yourself. For you personally, how do you arrange? When you, for instance, see an idea uh, on the internet, in the newspaper, wherever it is, how do you investigate that idea? How do you feel that you think for yourself? So the first part is um, trying, and this is especially pertinent, I think, in the period of social media, trying to make sure that you do not adopt a position because it will be popular with the kind of people who think similarly to you. So over the Brexit period, and I've started to hate the phrase on both sides, seeing as it has this connotation of people trying to, you know, excuse whatever, but actually on both sides, I thought we saw certain key figures start to just basically become these kind of empty vessels for what they thought would give them the most popularity. And you could almost see in some cases people's serotonin being released with the likes on social media, with the support on social media. And the way that process ends up is you've just outsourced your own brain to your tribe. And in a period of tribalism, in a period where governments, especially nationalist governments, are no longer seeking broad-based electoral support. They're seeking to divide populations according to their cultural values, using, yes, social media, but also using the mainstream media, and deliver to their base. The first step to that is stepping away from that tribal aspect of yourself, that group pull in your brain to just want to be accepted in a certain group, and to actually think, what is my take on what is happening? What is my true opinion? Then the second stage is, of course, finding people that you trust in particular areas. Coronavirus is one of them now, where you think this is someone who is basing their views on empirical evidence. This is not someone who's coming, who's allowing their politics to influence the manner in which they think the objective world works. But that second stage, I think, is ultimately at the moment less important than the first psychological stage, which is just trying to make sure that you're genuinely autonomous in your views. Well, one of the problems seems to be I mean, one, I don't know how autonomous we can ever be in our views. I think it's a very, very difficult thing. It's a bit like the self-made man scenario. The the way that culture works means that we ourselves would always be ultimately constructed and our opinions constructed from so many different sources. And even if we go to the evidence-based sources, nevertheless, as we see in, you know, e even in the best science, there will be biases within that. So I'm interested, like, for instance, at the weekend, of uh, when, two days before we were recording this, you know, there, there was a, a protest in Trafalgar Square, and I ended up in some argument. I didn't go there, obviously, I, but I ended up in, in some arguments uh, with some people online where some of them are saying, well, this is bringing the government, this is, you know, questioning the government and questioning what the actions that they're, they're doing, and we need to protest that. And, and there is within that, obviously, uh, the problems of, for instance, private contracts given to companies which, frankly, are not fit for purpose. There's lots of different things that are going on which are problems with the government. But then also within that, you have anti-vaxxers. And also within that, you have people who don't believe the uh, virus you know there's so many this is seems to me that at the moment part of the conflict is there is so much information that we can only end up drunk and confused by it and therefore we reach out for what is nearest to how we imagine the world to be and I think that's a very difficult thing can I do the two parts of that so the first one on whether you can be autonomous I mean most of this is um 
So you take sort of John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor, who do the, the, the sort of classic liberal text on liberty is where most of it is found, which is a classic liberal sort of text on autonomy, on how to think independently, on how to exist independently, how to make sure that like your act of self-creation, that your life is freely chosen for yourself and not really the result of what society wants for you. And it's not so much can it be achieved. They're aware that this is an almost impossible ideal to reach towards. Their principle is you should aspire towards it anyway. And they do so, I mean, in a variety of ways, but their main mechanism is to demand from each person a certain amount of humility and a certain amount of confidence. Like the confidence comes from seeking out the strongest possible argument against your position. If you look at most of the debate that you'll see online, and I imagine the same on Saturday, it's usually by taking the weakest argument against your position and interpreting that as the general argument for the opposing side. In fact, what they demand, in fact, their, their quote was, you must feel the full force of the argument. So you must seek out the smartest, most evidence-based option and take that one on rather than the weakest. The second is to have the humility to realize that you will be wrong. And in fact, that everyone contains slivers of truth. This is the big thing. When we talk about the battle of ideas, like the battle of ideas is just such a deadening phrase nowadays, usually parroted out by sort of the most tedious kind of contrarian right-wing commentators, you know, against, you know, all lives matter, that kind of thing. But actually for them, the battle of ideas wasn't just opposition. It was also synthesis, right? The idea was truth exists in the world but it's cut up and sliced up and scattered around lots of different viewpoints. And you will talk to people who hold very different ideas. Mill himself did this um, with, with various figures. But nevertheless, there is something true within it. So you're searching for synthesis. You're searching also for where you are wrong. That also gets taken up, I think, later by Karl Popper with the idea of sort of falsification and things like that, that you're ultimately supposed to embrace your own wrongness. So that part of the process... Is it truly ever attainable to be completely autonomous? Probably not. And you probably wouldn't want to be the person who was completely uninterested, you know, in what his parents thought you know, of, of how he did or, or what his wife, you know, you wouldn't want to be that guy. Of course, we're, we're part of that. But still, the aspiration is to have control over your life, to freely make your own decisions rather than just, you know, being herded into them by the expectations of those around you. And I think you'll see that if you carry those values into those sorts of discussions that you're talking about, I think you'll find that that makes it much easier makes you much more liable to find the aspects of these debates where actually there is validity and be vigilant against those where really ultimately there isn't i think i think it's a very interesting i mean because i do think it's a hugely problematic idea at the moment uh well the idea is not problematic but the action of it is is problematic because because we we have too much information you can always find the person and, and it would be easy if you just went well these websites for instance are obvious bullshit and there are a huge number of obvious bullshit websites. But then you get to someone who isn't who is a specialist in that particular area. And as we know, within science itself, there are and especially this, I think, is one of the problems with the COVID-19 pandemic is that uh, there will be different opinions because we're at an early stage of understanding a virus. There is, though, generally a, a reasonably large pool of people who, if you look collectively, go, this does appear to be the least wrong way ahead. And this one, for the time being, and part of the problem seems to become that we have to be in a very dogmatic world, whereas we know in politics you have to, you know, I think much like journalism very often, you have to utterly believe something. It is utter truth. But then next Monday, your column, when it entirely contradicts that, is still utter truth. And your previous, you know, it's, it's the old George Orwell, you know, the con 
constant victory um, over our memories. I think it is. I can't remember. Is it a constant victory over our memories? But so, so that to me is one of the hard things of, of any form of autonomy, which is you can actually find reliable sources that contradict. And so people who are, it's, it's the old line from uh, probably Bertrand Russell, but of course you can always say G.K. Chesterton or Mark Twain because they are the most quoted people. But, you know, um, the, the idiots are cocksure or the intelligent are full of doubt. The moment you get to a certain point of curiosity, you can feel utterly lost. But isn't that part of it, that when you pick the people that you trust, and this paradoxically, weirdly enough, is one of the things that's actually become easier on social media than it was in the sort of analogue age, that usually part of the basis upon which you trust them is their expression of doubt. Like when you find, and, and actually you get that, let's say that with political commentators too. There are political commentators out there. I'm not going to name the bad ones and I'm not going to name the good ones. So you'll just have to guess which ones I'm talking about. Who regularly say, I got this bit wrong and this is what I think is my assumptions that I got wrong when I made that judgment wrong. Even if it's on parliamentary arithmetic or if it's on the impact of policy. And there's others who you will see them, again, not going to name them. I have a very clear idea in my head right now of who I'm talking about. Who you will see them switch from position to position, as if the first initial one never existed, never admitting what they did wrong, and taking that instinct of just absolute certainty until it almost becomes a sort of psychological breakdown, a kind of sociopathic approach to political ideas. And that is the basis upon which you come up with the judgments on whose information you trust. But to trust in someone is not to have faith in them. It's to think that this is someone with a high degree of credibility who's reasoning in an appropriate way and will confess when they're wrong. It isn't to defer your judgment to whatever it is that they say. Yeah, the, I, I mean, I always think in something like this situation, I mean, and you know, I have the advantage of the fact that because of what I do, I have, can get direct access to virologists and immunologists and all of that. And, and, and that's an advantage a lot of other people don't have. I mean, I'm, it, I, I'm thinking at the moment with the idea of there being a new judge in the Supreme Court, that seems to me to be a very clear test of, uh, and, and this, you know, hypocrisy can be overused very often, but that moment where you go, if you're going to rush in a judge, then you are going directly against everything that you said four years ago. And then the interesting thing, as you said, is to watch the commentators who go, oh, no, but this is different. And from that point onwards, you realise that their uh, allegiances are far greater than their interest in kind of, you know, truth and, and ethics. Yeah, that's right. And you're right. It's particularly I was watching the video last night of two and a half minutes of Republican senators saying things that they are now about to reverse. Um we're in a period right now which, which does have, going back to that Orwell quote you just had, is, does feel like a war against the concept of memory. And you see it, I mean, you see the same thing here, right? Like looking at the last week of Boris Johnson talking about his deal. So the deal, you know, for, for months before it was signed, for, in fact, for a year, a year and a half, especially when Boris Johnson was foreign secretary, he said, you know, no British government would ever sign a deal that put a customs border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Then he signed the deal which did precisely that. And any expert you spoke to, this was not an area where there was disagreement among trade experts. Any, any trade expert that read that said, well, this is what it does. It will do it on customs checks. It'll do it on sanitary and phytosanitary checks. It'll do it if there's a deal in the case of rules of origin checks. There will be checks on that border. That is what that deal does. Now, during that period, he said there would be no checks and the deal was very good. Now we've entered a third period where he says that the deal was very bad. And in fact, there will be checks and he needs to break international law to deal with that. So you've had three stages where... His messaging, quite apart from whatever anyone thinks about any politics, his messaging is only, you could only possibly believe it if you have no capacity for memory. And that's because I think that there is a new political moment happening, which is a war 
Against memory, and also I have to say, and I know this sounds a little bit highfalutin, but I do feel that there is a sort of attack on the concept of honour in politics. There's no point getting too dreamy about what politicians used to be like, but politicians did once think that if they were caught misleading the public, if they were caught lying, and especially if they were caught during it on multiple occasions, there would be political consequences for that. Now, at the moment, the assumption, you get that from the, the Trump administration, Washington Post currently has him at 19,000 lies over the course of his administration, which started pretty much from day one. If you remember that kind of tragicomic nonsense over the crowds at his inauguration, it started instantly and carried on in pretty much exactly that line. And the same in the Johnson administration of just being able to say whatever you want without having any thought that you will be remembered for it. You look at the early quotes that Johnson said about the coronavirus, you know, we'll send this thing packing in 12 weeks. This is the stuff he was saying in early March. I mean, no one who had any understanding of this thing could possibly have dreamt that that was a correct statement at that point. And, you know, quite apart from our doubts over the coronavirus, we knew then that could not possibly be a correct statement. But he said it because he had no, he truly believed people would not have the memory and they would not have the desire to judge him on the basis of honour, on the basis of knowing that what you're saying is true. And that I mean, politicians have lied, sure, absolutely they've lied before, but that is a qualitatively different political environment that we're dealing with. Yeah, I think it's a very, it, it, it was a fascinating moment when uh, politicians found out, do you know what, a lot of things we thought we had to be worried about. We don't. We can just make up any old shit. We can just keep making up shit. And I think you notice that in 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 in, in Bush the Younger's administration, that really seemed to be that next level of him standing at a podium, delivering a promise, and literally walking straight off and saying, "We won't be doing that." And and there there, there was not even that moment of illusion where you go, "Well, maybe he." No, things change, and oh no, no, there was no intention. I'll ask one more thing before we will eventually get onto the, the the theme of the book, possibly. But then again, it, it makes people so much more excited if they don't really know what's in it. Uh, so much more of a nice surprise. <laughs> but I would, um, I do wonder, and I don't know how you feel about this as someone who uses social media quite a lot. Do you have I? I feel, and you might disagree with this, but I feel that social media, and I think there are some others that has been very useful to the right and very fragmenting to the left. Uh, it seems to have been, in terms of actual empower, I think it's it seems to have created more damage. Whereas the right, it seemed, to, and I wondered whether one, whether you agree with that, or and two, if you do, why you think that might be. Mm. Currently, that is clearly the case. I mean, I have visited that book on, on sort of left-wing populism, but there's not much of it. And the reason there's not much of it, and I'm mostly focusing my fire on Trump and Johnson and Orban and Salvini and guys like that, is because the right are in government, right? So, you know, that, that is the clear area of priority. And at the moment, it seems that way. I don't necessarily think it needs to be that way forever. The ultimate process that we've seen through social media is this idea of identity segments. And the, the research on that is kind of fascinating. Like you look at this stuff that they found from Facebook, which was, I mean, really broad um, cultural inputs that would lead you to very specific political outputs. So th these are guys that were taking the likes that people had done on Facebook. So you like Lady Gaga, you like The Sopranos. And from these very, very broad inputs, you would certainly be able to tell... Um, for instance, people's voting patterns, which way they were likely to vote. They were very often able to tell their parents' relationship status, whether they were separated or not, their sexuality, their age. They were very, very um, sort of 
personal information that you could extract from this. And this became a product that was, you know, extremely susceptible to political influence. And it fundamentally changed the way that politics operated from broad-based alliances, these broad electoral alliances that politicians needed to stay in power, meaning you had to come up with messages that were to unite the public, the, the, the kind of things that could bring people together across lines rather than divide them, and instead emphasize the kind of campaigning strategy that really rewarded you for dividing and then just delivering to your base, just deliver constantly to your base, which I think you see again when you see Trump talking about Black Lives Matter. I think you see it from Johnson when you see him over the last week talking about Europe and them not, you know, entering into debates with, with a good attitude and food blockades. This is stuff that is presumed to operate for the base. And that is partly from social media. It is then true that Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson thought when they ran the last election in 2019, we can unite our lot, and they can, to about 40%. Right, so you've got about 30% Tory voters, you've got about another 10% Brexit voters, and that 40% block will win them an election and would win them an election right now. They still have that 40% sort of electoral block, whereas the other side was divided, you know, against SNP, the biggest divide is SNP, Labour, and you get the same with Lib Dems, for instance, on, on a harder Remain position. That situation doesn't always have to pertain, though, and I think that that is fundamentally a current electoral situation rather than a deep-seated political value situation. There is a world in which that, that there is a, a much more solid left-wing coalition that could emerge from it. At the moment, we're not seeing it. Yeah, because I, I was always intrigued in wondering whether one of the reasons the fragmentation is the fact that predominantly in the right you see an, an ideology which at, at, at least tells the story that it wants to basically take you back in time, which is a singular route. Whereas a lot of left-wing uh, ideals want to take you forward into a new future. And of course, that's many different paths. So that allows, you know, you, for instance, you are, I'm sure there are lots of people that before social media, you would have remained allies and you would have had arguments in the pub. And then now it only takes one misstep of a tweet and you are in a total, you know, that it's decided you're bad. You're, 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 you're not the right kind of left-wing and therefore you're out of this one. I've sort of, I, I, you, you just made me disagree with you twice and agree with you once in the course of about two sentences. And I, I mean, the first thing is, I don't think modern conservatism really is looking back to the past. It seems kind of almost Maoist in its desire. Like, if you look at someone like Cummings, if you even look at someone like Steve Bannon, they're not really conservatives. It's not about heritage. It's not about protecting institutions. In fact, uh, I should I should make it clear by it. It, it's a return to a, a, a fictional past of identity and various. It's not the actual. I, I would agree that ultimately what it is about is is it's not conservative at all, but it appears to be. Do you remember when you know the, a bit like the, a lot of the Brexit stuff, which is kind of a movie with with Stanley Holloway. It's passport to Pimlico. It's when when everything when we lived in an Ealing comedy. <laughs> but I would yeah, agree that the actual truth of it is somewhat different. There's some truth, especially with uh, Donald Trump's messaging. If you think about make America great again, the most important part of that sentence is again, right? And I think that operated for two groups. It operated, first of all, for those voters is sort of predominant, well, not just predominantly, I mean, overwhelmingly white voters in America who basically wanted to reset to the 1950s, which is, you know, before before ethnic minorities, before women were getting all uppity and wanting positions, you know, in, in business, et cetera. Um, 
And it then operated to a second category of voters who were predominantly very angry, alienated sort of white men online who were just outraged by having a black man in the White House. So it, it was a message that went back to the 60s civil rights movement and to Barack Obama's presidency, I think, and when we can reset both of these events. So I think in that context, yeah, it was looking towards the past. But most of the policy proposals that we see, insofar as they go back to anything, they go back to the pre-World War One era. They basically go back to the period between World War One and World War Two before we bait before we created a rules-based order, before we created things like the WTO, like the EU, like um, international, especially human rights law. So it's, it, it is quite strange in that regard. And even then, it doesn't quite go back to the traditional right-wing laissez-faire economics of that period, but actually goes for something that sees a more muscular state in, in the economy. So it's a weird, insofar as it does go back to the past, it does so in a very weird Frankenstein sort, sort of way. Um, you're certainly right, look, on the left about this idea, this, this idea of holding people to an absolute level of moral purism, which simply cannot be attained. Um, and that is more prevalent on the left. You're quite right than it is on the right. So w- what you see, I think, in that daily churn of outrage, and this is more on Twitter than on Facebook, but you do get it on both, is um, a sort of attempt to save yourself from the daily game of the internet. The daily game of the internet is who will the internet kill today? You know, someone's reputation has to be destroyed by the internet on every day. And on the left, especially, that takes a very strange form because if you're attacking someone on the right who anyway is held in very low moral esteem, whether it's on, you know, issues of race or or, or anything else, you don't actually get that many points for yourself. But if you attack someone who is seen as having high virtue, in other words, someone who's broadly within your sort of ranking within your tribe, I mean, then that actually speaks even to an even higher virtue in your own personality. Because look, you're even better than this person who calls themselves left wing, who calls themselves progressive. So on the left, there is this sort of degenerating game of trying to kill everyone <laughs> as often as possible in, in a bid to, to show your own moral purity. And yeah, I now accept that that is more prevalent on the left than it is on the right. Well, let's get to the book. You start with a nightmare of Descartes, which is not necessarily where people, uh, you know, book books about how to be a liberal. Uh, you, you're not necessarily expecting a, a philosophical nightmare around the fireplace. Why is that the starting point? It's a kind of, and look, I had a couple of sort of Cartesian philosophers as well being like, oh, you worry too much about the dream and you should worry. But Descartes himself really thought about this dream. And it was a, it's, a, it's a very weird dream. So it's a series of three nightmares that he has one night, one of which kind of I find a bit spooky as well, which is just he's walking down this road and there's this wind that just won't let him stand upright. He's constantly being battered around. And he sees this sort of church as kind of a school church. Uh, to get inside the gates. He gets there, he sees someone he knows, he tries to talk to them, but the wind keeps on smacking him around. And then the wind sort of drives him into the ground and these figures emerge, all of them completely steady on their feet. And they just stare down at him as he, as he scrambles around in the dirt. And then he wakes up and he's, he is just absolutely shitting himself. It's the middle of the night. He's trembling with fear. There's another dream, which is an explosion by the fireplace. And then there's a third. Again, he's terrified. And then there's a third dream, which is a bit calmer, which is where he stood by a table and there's a couple of books. And a guy appears and he discusses the book. One of the books says, which path in life shall I choose in Latin? But then the weird thing that happens is the guy fades away and the table and the books fade away. But Descartes stays in the dream and he stays in the dream and he starts interpreting it while he's dreaming. And then he wakes up. And his, his take from this is 
basically the matrix. That what he concludes from this is the matrix. It's just like, I don't really know what's true. I don't know what's true when I'm waking. I don't know what's true. I can't prove I'm not in a dream. Even if I could, there could be an evil demon, you know, putting all of this stuff in my head. And that leads him on a search of trying to think, what is the only thing that I can guarantee is actually true? It's not maths because the evil demon could, you know, confuse two plus two might actually equal five. And where he gets to with that is eventually the most famous sentence in philosophy, which is, I think, therefore I am, right? You can doubt whatever you want, but if you're doubting, then you definitely are. And it's not just that, but you're definitely thinking. And I want to add a third part to that, which he doesn't add, which is essentially that you're thinking using reason. Um, Mm. Now, this isn't usually considered anything to do with politics, and Descartes would be fucking mortified if he knew what I was doing with his philosophy. But frankly, he'd be mortified with what anyone was doing with his philosophy, because he wasn't using this argument to try and destroy ideas like God. He was actually doing it to reaffirm them, something that he failed spectacularly in. But what seems amazing to me about that moment is, and that moment is probably, you could say, arguably the most famous argument in all of Western philosophy, um, is that he essentially finds the individual. Right. Everything else falls away. And on an existential level, what is the only thing that you can be certain is true? It's that you exist, not your religion, not your race, not your country. You exist as an individual and you are capable of reason. And it's only by virtue of that reason that you know you exist. So suddenly you get these the basic units of liberalism, the individual and reason just splutter into life in this place that you would not otherwise expect to find them. So I accept that. No one else really starts these books with Descartes' dream. But they seem to me to be like a properly pivotal moment, like the existential building blocks from which then all of the po- the politics kind of arises. Well, that that's one of the interesting... As you see the development, you know, what liberal means now in, 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 in you know, that general kind of parlance, the kind of thing that, you know, Anne Coulter rails against or whatever else it might be, is very different to the... the, the different the forms of liberalism that that you take us through like i mean the for instance there's, there's an interesting character a character i'd never heard of for benjamin constant who you describe as kind of the world's first liberal and can you give so in terms of him ideologically why why do you think yes this is this is the character where i think we can start with the actual framework the framework of being a liberal yeah he's interesting um he's a bastard and a complete maniac i mean his he is uh, insane and in his whole life is just this litany of fucking disasters he spends his whole life basically running around europe trying to escape sort of angry husbands whose wife he slept with or his debtors who he's lost he had all this money and he just loses it gambling his entire life constantly running away just utterly unreliable betraying basically every friend he ever made um, and all of the women he ever loved. I mean, he's a disaster, a human disaster zone. But then his writing comes in. And his writing is like it was just done by someone. I mean, it's this sudden elevation in liberal thought. Because until then, you've got sort of the English Civil War, you've got the French Revolution, you've got these kind of churning appeals for freedom, which usually end up with tyranny, mostly because they haven't properly managed to cut apart these two drives within liberalism, one of which is for democracy and the other one is for individual liberty, individual rights. And so once you start, if you don't get those two bits properly together, once if you don't understand that democracy is required, but it is not enough, individual rights must be protected within it, you very quickly get to what Cromwell did. Cromwell during the English Civil War, they talk about the will of the people. Suddenly, it looks like the will of the people turns out to be the will of Cromwell. During the French Revolution, you hear about the will of the people or the general will, taking the phrase from Rousseau. It turns out that's just what Robespierre wants, which happens to be that he wants to kill everyone. Um, then you get to Constant. And Constant recognises 
first of all, that there is nothing the majority can do when it comes to interfering with the individual's sphere of freedom, no matter what democratic arguments are made there. The second thing he does, so he so he starts to address that fundamental, those two difficult strands within early liberalism. And he starts to articulate it in a way where the individual was placed at the very center of all political thought. And from there, people like John Stuart Mill, who are frankly cleverer than him, and Harriet Taylor, who are, who are superior, then branch it out into the structure that we know today. But the second thing he does is he starts to formulate the position for one side of the liberal economic divide. And that's the thing that goes all the way back through liberalism, but it's the first time that someone properly articulates it. He takes the ideas of Adam Smith, and he takes a couple of points from them. The first one is, you're entitled to your stuff which is essentially the right-wing position on, on economic freedom, which is essentially to say, state has no right to interfere with your stuff. You get to keep your stuff. You shouldn't really be taxed any more than there is the minimum absolutely necessary. The second is to say, people will have more stuff if the state doesn't get involved in the market. The market runs itself very, very efficiently. He uses Adam Smith for this, the invisible hand, basically. And the less the state interferes, the more stuff people will have. So you'll get better general results. That really becomes a position that then follows through to, let's say, Frederick Hayek in the 20th century, and that we now call something like neoliberalism, basically. The idea that the market but, is right, the state is wrong. Adam, is there a point in society where, because obviously you, you, you talk a little bit about you know Hayek and uh, his influence on, on Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's victory being described, his, his 80th birthday, it made his 80th birthday because he knew that he was now back definitely in the mainstream and then of course you know Reagan gets in again a heavy influence. Is there a point where that thought of individualism and society and uh, advantage for pretty much all is a possibility? in any of the structures of society because obviously in the 70s in the 80s rather and, and onwards we see that idea of individualism being actually an ability to entirely change the, you know the, the worth of CEOs you know we, we see the you know a, a return to a far greater disparity between the richest and the poorest all of those kind of, of things seem to come in in societies which are technically adopting you know just this the trickle down effect and the individual will mean that we can all thrive. No, and I mean, look, my position in the book is that it, it doesn't work. And each time it is tried, it ends up, first of all, making society much more unstable and insecure financially, as we saw rather spectacularly in 2008. And secondly, it creates people that simply will not accept on a democratic basis the things that it demands. And what it demands ultimately is, look, when there's a downturn in the economy, there's nothing the state can do to help. You know, you just have to sit it out, which is easy to say when you've got lots of money, as most of the people that propound this theory do, but it's much harder to say when you're in insecure work, when you're in insecure housing. So what do you mean it doesn't work? You have to be a bit, let me give two caveats against that position, because there's some things it does do well. The first one is there were some areas where deregulation took place. You could think of something like aviation, where it was actually quite good, you know, where deregulation worked. In that, and I'm talking about sort of the late 70s, um, 80s, sort of uh, Reagan, Thatcher, Hayek, especially Milton Friedman sort of period. Um, and there were certain things that Keynes, who really represents the left wing of liberalism during that period, simply hadn't quite got right and that his disciples hadn't quite seen. The most notable of those is the likelihood of inflation happening at the same time as rising unemployment. And that was just something that 
which we then called stagflation. And that was something that went wrong on that side. They fixed it pretty quickly, by the way, which is one said, well, there are circumstances in which inflation can rise. You get it, for instance, if you've got oil-producing states, as they did at the time, ratcheting up the price of oil, if you've got a lot of expenditure on a military project like Vietnam. So there were a couple of errors there. But where the laissez-faire, the right-wing neoliberal system, took people was a really simplistic view of um, the state versus market question. Essentially, to say the market's always right. The state is never right. There's really no situation in which it interferes in the economy. And for that is ultimately a deeply infantile view. It is essentially what communism is, but on the right. Communism's view of most economic questions is the state does it. So the state should do everything when it comes to the material world. The market has no role. The right-wing laissez-faire view was the market should do everything. The state has no role. Now, there is a different kind of liberalism to that, Pretty, I mean, which starts with John Stuart Mill and goes on, which is, a, I think, the most important economic philosophical sentence that I come across in this period. John Stuart Mill says it. He just says, the question of the state versus the market does not admit of a universal solution. Essentially, in each case that you look at, there will be some things that the market should do, there'll be some things that the state should do. You know, if you want to go buy a burger, you're probably going to want to do that from a place that's run by the market and not by the state. The state is not great at this. It's not great at making T-shirts. It's not good at reflecting where there is a diversity of demand, where some people do things better than others. However, the state is much better when it comes to most utilities, where if you do it by the market, you will get up a natural monopoly. For instance, on electricity, for John Stuart Mills, it was canals. And it's much better at knowing where we need to regulate, where the desires of, the, of um, individual market actors, be it a corporation or an individual, actually don't have a lot of social good coming from them. And one of those areas turned out to be the use of um, mortgages as financial investment assets. And that took us to a very, very bad place indeed. And I thought it was quite a defining moment in that battle between laissez-faire on the one hand and radical left-wing liberalism on the other. Yeah, that's the towards the end of the book. That was a reminder of uh, why I, I hope, you know, in many ways, Boris Johnson isn't remembered as the worst prime minister ever, because I think actually Cameron through action rather than inaction, uh, the damage There's a lot of um, we've run out of time, but there's, there's so much in this book and it is and it, and it really did. I mean, I, I'm interested in terms of your own. How much has your definition of what we might if you if you were going to use the term liberal for someone now? Um, how much has that definition changed through your writing of this book? I mean, what, what would you now say, if we're looking at 21st century someone, you would be comfortable to say that person is a liberal. What would that, that definition be now? So currently, my definition hinges on certain of the key aspects of liberalism. First one is that you believe in the freedom of the individual as your central moral vision of the world. And you can come to various conclusions from that. Lots of the people I've just been attacking on the right wing, on laissez-faire, are nevertheless liberals. And when people try to say that people like Hayek aren't liberals, that, that's wrong. They are. They're thinking in terms of the freedom of the individual. You can go quite far to the left, you can go quite far to the right. The central thing is you think about the freedom of the individual. You believe in reason as the operating mechanic by which politics is conducted. You believe that the highest aspiration of someone in their lifestyle is autonomy, that they select that lifestyle, regardless of how eccentric and looked down upon it is, by their own judgment rather than that which they take from others socially. And fourthly, this was quite a late addition that came through Isaiah Berlin mostly, was the idea of moderation in the manner in which politics is pursued. And I find this idea kind of quite beautiful and quite depressing at the same time. So it stems from this idea, Berlin did this better than anyone. In fact, he was really, this is the most radical thing I think he had to say, was conflict is never going to go away. 
Like, there is no happy ending. This idea that we can do politics and there'll be some utopia in the end where we all, we've just found the right system and we all agree, it's not ever going to happen because people have fundamentally different values and those values clash up against one another. They have fundamentally different yearnings, different needs. So the liberal system is therefore superior because it places itself, it doesn't say there's a utopia, it doesn't say it's not ever going to be okay. All we can do is manage conflict so it is moderated, so it's as calm and as generous and as understanding as possible. So moderation then becomes one of the core facets of the liberal regime, of the liberal approach towards politics. Those four ideas to me are the central ideas. But look, it's liberalism. It is a scrappy fucking thing. It is made up of people fighting each other. It doesn't come down on stone tablets. It's made for free thinkers. So you could get another liberal on here and they will say some completely different things to what I have said. And they would nevertheless still be entitled to be called a liberal. Brilliant. Thank you. So the, the uh, we never got around to talking about Titus Oates there. Uh, it is a book filled with Keynes and Cromwell and James II and Robespierre and, uh, as you mentioned, Isaiah Berlin, Orwell, Thatcher. It's a, uh, there, there is, is much in this. So um, How to Be a Liberal, Think for Yourself in a Populist World. Um, it's out now, isn't it, I believe? Yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah, by uh, Ian Dunn. So uh, it will it, it is it, it will entirely in fact it makes some of Anne Coulter's work almost redundant I know it seems remarkable <laughs> that, that could have been done um, if I've achieved anything that would make me very happy indeed oh I, just, I, I read one of her books once and I've never thrown anything across the room so many times uh, but there we are um, it's amazing thanks Ian that's great <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Ian's book, How to Be a Liberal, is out now. So head to Hive or your independent bookshop website to get that. Or if possible, go to your local independent bookshop safely whilst wearing a mask and observing social distancing and pick up a copy there. Back next week with a new episode. Science Book Shambles out now as well. Paul Nurse is our first up guest on that, the Nobel Prize winner, Paul Nurse, talking about his new book, What Is Life? Patreon.com slash bookshambles. That's the place to go to support the show. Rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. Take care, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.